0: There's a great kitchen story told from time to time, and sometimes when I've heard it told, it involves a chicken. Other times it involves a roast. But the version I know, being from North Carolina, involves a ham. There's a new couple, and they're celebrating their life together. They're in their kitchen, and the cook is busy preparing a great big meal. And so one looks at the other and says, why do you cut the back end of the ham and then you cut the front end of the ham and put it in the pan and then put the pan in the oven? Then she looks at her spouse and says, "Um, I'm not sure. I do it because my mother always did it. We'll have to ask her. And so a holiday comes around and everybody's in the kitchen and there's mom and Sure enough, there's the ham, and Mom cuts the front part off, and then cuts the back part off, puts it in the pan, puts the pan in the oven. And they say, Mom, why do we do that? Why do we cut the ham that way and put it in the pan? And she says, well, this is the way your grandmother did it. I don't know. You'll have to ask her. Well, the grandmother's on the back porch, so they all go out there, and they say, Grandma, Why do you cut the front of the ham and the back of the ham before putting it in the pan and putting the pan in the oven? The grandmother burst out laughing and she says, Well, I did that 40 years ago because I only had one pan and it wasn't big enough. (laughs) Sometimes practices and rules and regulations begin for perfectly good reasons, they make perfect sense. But then years and years later, people forget why they ever began doing that. The meaning changes over time, the relevance changes. In today's gospel, Jesus speaks to this idea, to this problem, to this temptation of placing a higher value on rule keeping than on community. Jesus is dealing with the dedicated religious folk of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you've ever spent much time in church or read the Gospels, you know that often the the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, are the bad guys. Um, They're the folks who never quite seem to get the point, and Jesus is always criticizing them. But if you look at them closely, they often seem a lot like us. They're the seriously religious. The scribes did great work. They they scribed. They wrote down. They kept the records. They kept the archives. They were the historians. They kept the tradition so that it could be handed on. And the Pharisees embodied that tradition. They kept the laws. They performed the laws. They they lived by the laws with every fiber of their being. They sought to be faithful to what they understood God was asking them to do and to be. And so the scribes and the Pharisees were doing all they could to follow what they understood of God's demands. And so you can imagine, we can all imagine probably, why the Pharisees and scribes see these newer followers of Jesus and they don't approve at all. These new people running after Jesus don't take seriously the traditions. They don't know all the laws and regulations. They make no attempt to learn them. The particular point in today's Gospel revolves around these religious folks noticing that Jesus' followers don't wash their hands properly before eating. Now, Mark's Gospel gives us a little more background on these folks. He says, The Pharisees and all the Jews of that day do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. If you know anyone who keeps kosher or halal, you know that there are particular rules and regulations. It's as though one of those folks sees a newer follower of the faith who does none of that. And so when the Pharisees quiz Jesus about this issue, Jesus doesn't spend any time dealing with the details. He goes right to the very heart of the matter. Jesus quotes Isaiah to them. Isaiah, who they probably could have recited as well. And Jesus suggests that they have strayed from the commandments of God the commandments that are really very simple, and they've gotten it all clouded up with rules and traditions made by humans. And then just to make sure they get the point, Jesus delivers his zinger. He says, there is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. For it is from within, Jesus says, from within the human heart that evil intentions come, And then Jesus goes on to list that whole host of evil things that might and sometimes do come out of us. It's this same sort of way of thinking that the Apostle Paul talks about in his letters when he's asked, what should a faithful person eat or drink? And how does that work when you're with a community that doesn't eat or drink that thing? Paul again boils it down to what is essential for preserving harmony and peace and love in Christ. The question for me that comes out of our gospel, the question for the church is, in what ways might our rules, our order, our ritual, our procedures create barriers between people and God? That's the question Jesus asks all of us, I think. Are there things we need to be free of In order to follow God more closely or more directly, are there ways in which perhaps we're being called to loosen up spiritually so that we might see or hear God as God wants to be seen and heard and known? It's not what we put into our bodies so often that gets us into trouble. It's not so much what we eat or drink or how we say our prayers or whether we kneel or stand, Instead, Jesus points out, it's what comes out, it's how we act, it's how we show forth our faith, it's our words, our words to strangers, our words to family, our words to other people of faith, it's the way we act out our faith, as the epistle from James made so very clearly early, be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To care for the orphans and the widows and their distress, to keep oneself unstained by the world. But it's easy to get caught up in the details, isn't it? It's easy for us to focus on the form of religion and sort of forget the substance. I remember after I was ordained a priest, it was very soon thereafter, and I was on the schedule in my church to celebrate the weekday Eucharist. And usually about 10 or 15 people would come to those services. So it's not a a hugely um, sort of worrisome affair, except that I'd heard that the Reverend Dr. Lewis Weil was in town and staying at the rectory. Um, Dr. Weil is still living and he's still, in my book, is, is the preeminent liturgical scholar of the Church. That means he knows about worship. He knows who worshiped when and where and how, why they did it, and what we do today. He knows it all. He's a wonderful, wonderful man, and then to make it worse, he's holy. <laughs> so he's really sweet. He's sort of like a grandfather that also knows everything. So sure enough, I came out ready to celebrate the Eucharist and there he sits. Second row right on the right. I probably began to shake then. I immediately worried, well, are my feet too close together or too far apart? Am I standing up straight? Is my vestment on correctly? Uh, When I pray in Orant's posture, is it too much of a field gold? Or is it too much of a let's all hug in Jesus? Is it where it should be, the sweet spot of prayer? On and on I went, wondering, well, is my gesture right, or was I a little off-center with that? How's my pace? Am I talking too quickly or too slowly? Am I too monotone? Am I too dramatic? It's amazing we got through the Eucharist. As a friend of mine used to say, the bottom line was met. All were fed and no one got hurt. (laughs) After the service, I greeted the handful of people who were there, and then I made a beeline for Father Weil. And I asked him, I said, Father, well, did you notice anything in particular about my style of celebrating that I need to change? Because, you know, I'm just starting out. I'd really be grateful for anything you might add. You know, how was my prayer? How was my cadence? Um, How was everything? How did I stand? I went on and on and on. He looked at me with this incredulous expression. And he said, oh, John, I have no idea. I wasn't paying any attention. I was here to worship. Like he can do, he so beautifully and gracefully put me in my place. He was there to worship, and he had noticed what mattered. I had been caught up in all these little extraneous details, and in all truth was probably not worshiping very much or very deeply. I still don't know whether Father Weil was telling me the absolute truth, but he probably was. He probably really was worshiping. I have a colleague who cannot attend a church that's not his own. And usually in his own church, he needs to be at the altar for it to be even something he can sit through. And so I used to attend diocesan events with him, and I would sit near him, or I would see him at someone else's church for some special occasion. Um, And he would make me nervous because he would be writing little notes to himself. He'd be muttering. He'd be shaking his head. Um, I was embarrassed and I wanted to fix things and so my gut reaction was usually one of anger and frustration. Over time I've learned just don't sit near him and try not to look his way. But also over time I've noticed that my reaction is not so much anger, but it's sadness. I'm sad for what he's missing. I'm sad that there's so many obstacles between him and what God's trying to do. And so many of the obstacles I think he's putting there himself, adding more every time he goes to church. So often when we hear the words of the gospel or we read the words of Jesus or we hear the teachings of Jesus, we can hear them as as angry words, as judgmental words. But I think if we really look at who Jesus the Christ is, they're they're sad words. Jesus is sad that we don't get it. Jesus is sad that we make things so difficult. Jesus is sad that we don't accept the good God would give us. It's easy for us to get caught up in the details. For the Pharisees, it was about when and how to wash hands. For us, who knows what it is? I know that newcomers who come to this church and many others are curious why we cross ourselves at certain times, why we bow, why we might kneel. There are many reasons for these things, and we can talk about them in Christian formation classes. But I hope that newcomers and old-timers and everybody in between gets it clear that that stuff is not the most important. The most important is that we know we are God's beloved and that the people around us are God's beloved and that we enter into the mystery of divine worship as fully as we can, eating and drinking, sharing and singing, praying, however we pray, whether kneeling or standing or standing on our heads. May we praise God. It is from within that the bad things can come, as Jesus enumerated, but it also is from within that all the good things flow forth, the the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness and the insight and the wisdom and the love of God working and living through us all. I love that old ancient prayer from Salisbury, sometimes called the Serum Primer. For centuries it's been prayed and sung. It's a prayer for God to integrate us fully, to bring head and heart and mind and spirit and body all into one. This side of heaven we probably never fully get there, but little by little with the grace of God, God moves us forward. May God be in our head and in our understanding, God be in our eyes and in our looking, God be in our mouth and in our speaking, God be in our heart and in our thinking, God be at our end and at our departing. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, Amen.